1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. In June of last year, we did an episode on the Haymarket Riot, which is also called the Haymarket Massacre and the Haymarket Incident. A lot of names for it. The briefest of all recaps this is one sentence, a rally that was held to support a strike for an eight-hour workday ended in violence after police ordered the remaining crowd to disperse and somebody threw a bomb into their ranks. In that episode, we mentioned Lucy Parsons. Her husband, Albert, was one of the speakers at this rally, and he wasn't involved in planning the rally. He could not have thrown the bomb, but he was convicted on charges of conspiracy and he was hanged. So that earlier episode was not really about Lucy Parsons. We didn't talk about her much at all. But as all of this was happening, she was an activist in her own right, and her work evolved and continued for decades after her husband's execution. She became one of the most notorious anarchists in the United States in the 20th century. The Chicago Police Department called her more dangerous than a thousand rioters. But her activism... In spite of the fact she was so reviled in that way, it was consistently focused on improving the lives of workers and poor people and immigrants and people who were unemployed or homeless. Her name has come up in a bunch of random asides and research for multiple other episodes since then, so I have moved her up to the top of the list.
1: Some aspects of Lucy Parson's life are tricky to pin down. We have a wealth of detail about her as an adult, lots of names and dates and places she traveled and the work she did, and a lot of her writing has also survived. But we often don't know her thoughts or motivations on some of the choices she made. She died in a fire at her home in 1942, which destroyed some of her books and some of her personal papers. Afterward, police and the FBI seized what was left. It's not clear what happened to those materials, but it's possible that some of it could have shed light on some unanswered questions.
0: And beyond the loss of her personal papers, Parson's racial and ethnic background was the subject of a lot of discussion and rumor during her lifetime After she and Albert moved from Waco, Texas to Chicago, Illinois, both of them were really only consistent about one thing in this regard, and that was that she did not have African ancestry. At various points, she said that her family was Spanish or Mexican or indigenous or some combination of those.
1: And there were also times when she just said that it was nobody's business. After her husband's conviction, she went on a speaking and fundraising tour to support a clemency campaign. A reporter during that tour asked her about her background at her first stop, and she said, quote, I am not a candidate for office, and the public have no right to my past. I am out to nothing to the world, and people care nothing of me. I am battling for a principle.
0: But historian Jacqueline Jones published a biography in 2017 called Goddess of Anarchy, The Life and Times of Lucy Parsons' American Radical. And in this biography, she documented some details of Parsons' life before moving to Chicago. These details, a lot of them contradict what Parsons said herself, and by all appearances, they are things that she intentionally tried to hide. But again... While this biography clarified some specifics, we don't have documentation of Parsons' thought process or her motivations.
1: After moving to Chicago, Lucy Parsons publicly maintained that she had been born in Waco, Texas, but Jones traced her birth to Virginia in 1851. Parsons' mother was an enslaved woman named Charlotte, and her father was white, probably Charlotte's enslaver, Thomas J. Tolliver. In 1863, Tolliver moved to McLennan County, Texas, taking at least part of his enslaved workforce with him. This included Charlotte, her 12-year-old daughter Lucia, and her 7-year-old son Tanner. Lucia would grow up to be known as Lucy Parsons. To be clear, these people had been declared free under the Emancipation Proclamation, but it would have been even harder for the federal government to enforce this in Texas, which may well have been one of the reasons Tolliver took them there.
0: About three years after arriving in Texas, Tolliver went back east to get married. The Civil War was over at this point, but news of the war's end and the abolition of slavery had been really slow to reach Texas, That's usually noted as happening on June 19th of 1865 when federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas. Today, that is what's observed as the Juneteenth holiday. Life for Black people in Texas was still extraordinarily dangerous. The Texas legislature had implemented racist Black codes that restricted Black people's behavior and enacted harsh punishments for things like owning weapons or insulting a white person. Former enslavers essentially treated their free workers as though they were still enslaved, and there were gangs of white vigilantes who terrorized the state's Black population. It appears that Charlotte took Tolliver's absence when he went back east to get married as an opportunity to flee from rural McLennan County to Waco, which was the county's largest city, along with her children. Waco shared the same
1: dangers as other parts of Texas that were home to freed people. But it was also home to a growing community of black people who were establishing their own churches, schools, and businesses and working to protect themselves from violence. There were also white people in Waco who were working to try to protect the black community and work toward equal rights. One of them was Albert Parsons, who had served in the Confederate Army during the war but had become a radical Republican after it was over.
0: After her family arrived in Waco in 1866, Lucia found work where she could, including working as a seamstress and a cook, and she also went to school. She started a romantic relationship with a man named Oliver Benton, and he paid for her tuition and her books at the school. Some sources give Oliver's last name as Gaythings. That was the last name of his former enslaver. A year or two after arriving in Waco, Lucia's mother married a man named Charlie Carter, and she gave her children, including Lucia, his last name. Sometime
1: between the late summer of 1868 and July of 1869, Lucia gave birth to a baby who she named Champ. According to Oliver Benton, he and Lucia were married, and he was the baby's father. Although there is no record of this marriage, marriages between enslaved people had not been legally recognized, and after slavery was abolished, it was common for free people to commit to their own marriages without going through legal paperwork. So the details aren't clear,
0: but Champ seems to have died in infancy. Then on September 28, 1872, 22-year-old Lucia Carter married 28-year-old Albert Parsons, although the name she gave the officiant was Ella Hall. The many variations of her name that she gave to people in subsequent years sometimes included some variation on Ella as a middle name and Hall as her maiden name. Albert Parsons had been working extensively with the radical faction of the Republican Party in Texas. He had stridently advocated for Black people in Texas to have full and unrestricted access to the rights they were guaranteed under the Constitution. He had helped Black people register to vote, and he had been made a lieutenant colonel in the state militia where he was tasked with protecting the Black community in several counties where they were being targeted with racist violence. He had also, in addition to all of this, worked for the Office of Public Instruction.
1: Although at least some radical Republican leaders endorsed interracial relationships, It would have been really unusual for a white man in Parsons' position to marry a Black woman. And this marriage took place during a very narrow window in which interracial marriages were legal in Texas at all. Earlier, in 1872, the state Supreme Court had issued a ruling in Honey v. Clark that affirmed that interracial marriage was legal. But just weeks after their marriage, the Texas legislature passed a new law that banned it.
0: The Republican Party also lost control of the Texas government in 1873, and the newly installed legislature started repealing the laws that had been passed to try to protect the state's Black population and their rights during the post-war Reconstruction. The Parsonses started facing increasingly overt racism and threats of violence. Ku Klux Klan activity started to increase all through Texas, and this same pattern was playing out all over, especially the southern U.S.
1: In the face of all of this, the couple decided to leave. And it appears that as they traveled north, Lucia decided to put her past behind her, changing her first name to Lucy and claiming Texas as her birthplace. At various points from here on out, she would say that her maiden name had been Gonzalez, Diaz, or Hall. You will often see her full name written out as Lucy Eldine Gonzalez Parsons.
0: We'll talk about what happened when they got to Chicago after a quick sponsor break. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When you think about the future, what
1: kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
0: That's the start of the show. We mentioned that we don't have documentation of Lucy Parsons' thoughts or feelings or motivations about a lot of the decisions that she made in her life. But we can draw some pretty likely conclusions about why she took on a new identity and tried to leave her past behind her when she moved away from Waco to Chicago, Illinois. She had already lived through so much trauma and she was acutely aware of the limits that white society tried to impose on Black people's lives. Her appearance would have prevented her from passing as white, but presenting herself instead as Mexican and indigenous rather than Black meant that she might have access to spaces that she would have been shut out of otherwise.
1: Also, today, Chicago has one of the largest populations of indigenous people of any city in the U.S., but that was not the case in the late 19th century. The vast majority of indigenous people living in the Great Lakes area had been forced out or killed in the 1830s. There also would have been very few Hispanic people in the city. And although Chicago's Black population was growing rapidly, it still measured less than 1% of Chicago's total population. And this meant that there wasn't a large community of color that Lucy could have assimilated with if that was what she had wanted to do. But it also meant that she wasn't likely to run into someone who either knew her from before or knew enough about the identities she was claiming to question those claims.
0: Instead, the community where Lucy and Albert Parsons found a home was one that was made up primarily of immigrants from Central Europe, The proportion varies a little bit over the last half of the 19th century, but immigrants made up between 40 and 50 percent of Chicago's population at the time. The easiest place for them to find work was in Chicago's factories, and at some point during these years, as many as 70 percent of Chicago's factory workers had been born outside the U.S.
1: Albert got a job as a printer, and he started doing the same kind of activism that he had been doing back in Texas. But instead of working through the Republican Party to try to improve the lives of Black people, he was working with socialists to improve the lives of workers, particularly immigrants. In addition to all the typical issues that were common in rapidly growing industrial cities, unemployment was an enormous issue in Chicago when Lucy and Albert got there. In the wake of the Panic of 1873, huge numbers of people were out of work. People who could find jobs were often working long hours in just grueling conditions for very low pay with no job security.
0: Albert and Lucy became active in Chicago's Social Democratic Party and First International, but both of these organizations were short-lived. After those organizations were disbanded, Albert joined the Workingmen's Party of the United States, or the WPUSA, and started hosting meetings of that organization in the Parson's home. Like First International, this had been started by followers of Karl Marx. Albert also started running for local office as a socialist. He ran for lots of different offices over the years. He did not win any of his elections, though.
1: A series of railroad strikes took place around the U.S. in 1877, collectively known as the Great Railroad Strike. The economic depression that had followed the Panic of 1873 was still ongoing, and the first wave of strikes started after the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad announced that it was cutting its workers' pay by 10%. Albert gave a speech during all this that began, quote, We are assembled here as the Grand Army of Starvation.
0: Some of the demonstrations surrounding these railroad strikes became quite violent. In some cases, striking workers destroyed bridges and rails and railroad cars. It's estimated that more than 100,000 workers took part in these strikes and that at least 100 people were killed. This was the first time that federal troops were deployed to try to put an end to a strike.
1: Although the WPUSA didn't organize the railroad strikes themselves, It did organize demonstrations and general strikes in support of the railroad workers, especially in Chicago and St. Louis. Although the strikes didn't result in many improvements for the workers, membership in the WPUSA grew in conjunction with the party's increased visibility. Lucy Parsons described this as a turning point.
0: It was definitely a turning point for the Parsons family as well, Albert lost his job because of his work during the strike, and other employers refused to hire him. Lucy expanded her sewing work into a bigger business to support them. It went from being kind of her own sewing that she was taking in to Parsons & Company, manufacturer of ladies and children's clothing. She also started hosting meetings of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union with her friend, labor organizer Lizzie Swank.
1: The Socialist Labor Party was established in December of 1877, and Lucy started writing articles and poems for its publication, which was known as Socialist. In the summer of 1878, she helped found the Chicago Working Women's Union to organize women who worked as store clerks, servants, and seamstresses. The union was under the umbrella of the Council of Trade and Labor Unions, and Lucy attended the council's meetings as well.
0: In addition to all of that, she and Albert had a son who they named Albert Jr. in 1879. They also had a daughter, Lula, who was born in
1: 1881. In the early 1880s, Lucy and Albert shifted their focus from socialism to anarchy, leaving the Socialist Labor Party for the International Working People's Association. They had become frustrated with the socialist movement, which they thought was focused on reforming a system that really just needed to be totally dismantled. Albert was also frustrated that many of the labor rights activists he had been working with hadn't really supported him when he was forced out of the printing industry following the Great Railroad Strike. This included his leaving the National Typographical Union.
0: Anarchist organizations and publications frequently used violent rhetoric in their calls to overthrow capitalism and other systems of oppression, and some of them also advocated actual violence, including printing instructions for making bombs. So, anarchists, including Albert and Lucy Parsons, got a lot of attention from newspapers and from law enforcement. Police officers, Pinkerton agents, detectives, and others infiltrated anarchist meetings in plain clothes, and then sometimes the organizers of those meetings tried to use this to their own advantage. Sometimes they would intentionally use more extreme language when they knew that they were being watched. The idea here was stoking fear of what their movement might do and then trying to use that fear as leverage to reach their goals.
1: Lucy started writing for the IWPA's publication, The Alarm, which was one of seven anarchist publications in Chicago, but the only one that was printed in English. Her article, To Tramps, the Unemployed, the Disinherited, and Miserable, published on October 4th, 1884, became a widely distributed key document within the American anarchist movement in the late
0: 19th century. It began, quote, A word to the 30,000 now tramping the streets of this great city, with hands in pockets, gazing listlessly about you at the evidences of wealth and pleasure of which you own no part— not sufficient even to purchase yourself a bit of food with which to appease the pangs of hunger now gnawing at your vitals. It is with you and the hundreds of thousands of others similarly situated in this great land of plenty that I wish to have a word. Parsons then meditated on the fact that so many people had been toiling for decades but had nothing to show for it, and she called for a total change to the industrial system. This piece ended with, quote, Each of you hungry tramps who read these lines, avail yourself of those little methods of warfare which science has placed in the hands of the poor man, and you will become a power in this or any other land. Learn the use of explosives. In 1886, Lucy published one of her few pieces
1: that directly referenced the idea of race. In January of that year, Afro-Indigenous brothers Ed and Charlie Brown were delivering molasses in Carrollton, Mississippi, and accidentally ran into a white man named Robert Moore. More than a month later, Moore told lawyer James Liddell about it. Liddell had an altercation with the Browns that ended in a gunfight, and the Browns tried to press charges against him. White people were outraged at the idea of Black people pressing charges against a white man an armed white mob stormed the courthouse during an evidentiary hearing, opening fire and killing both Ed and Charlie Brown, along with multiple other Black people who were in the courtroom. This happened on March 17, 1886, and it became known as the Carroll County Courthouse Massacre.
0: A couple of weeks later, Lucy published a piece called The Negro Let Him Leave Politics to the Politician and Prayer to the Preacher. She published that in The Alarm. She condemned these killings stridently, but also argued that it had not happened because the victims were Black. She wrote, quote, Are there any so stupid as to believe these outrages have been, are being, and will be heaped upon the Negro because he is Black? Not at all. It is because he is poor. It is because he is dependent. Because he is poorer as a class than his white wage slave brother of the North.
1: On May 1st, 1886, a general strike started in Chicago in support of an eight-hour workday. The Haymarket Affair took place three days later. We're not going to go back over the details of this incident since we covered it in another episode less than a year ago in quite a bit of detail, but it was during the aftermath that Lucy Parsons became one of the most widely known anarchists in the United States, and we'll talk more about
0: that after a sponsor break. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When you think about the
1: future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
0: Prior to the Haymarket incident, Albert Parsons had been traveling and speaking extensively. Presumably, Lucy was keeping everything going at home while also writing for the alarm a lot and working with local labor and anarchist groups in Chicago. We really don't have the specifics of how this was all working. It's possible that she was taking the children with her And the idea that she had her children with her was a key part of Albert's defense during his conspiracy trial. The whole idea being, we never would have brought our children with us if we had thought it was going to be dangerous. But after the Haymarket incident, Lucy often had to leave her children in other people's care. Lizzie Swank was often the person who was keeping her up to date on how they were doing. Albert Parsons
1: and seven other men were tried together after the Haymarket bombing. Lucy attended every day of the trial, along with jury selection, the proceedings stretched from June 21st to August 11th, 1886. All eight men were found guilty, and all but one of them were sentenced to death. That included Albert Parsons.
0: Lucy did a lot of work to raise money for a clemency campaign and to raise awareness of what had happened. She also edited and published a book called The Famous Speeches of the Eight Chicago Anarchists. She went on a speaking tour, traveling to 17 states and making more than 40 speeches. She earned as much as $100 a day through these talks and other activities, and she sent the vast majority of it back to Chicago for the men's defense. She walked her audiences through her account of what had happened at Haymarket, including, as I said earlier, how she would not have taken her own children with her if she thought it was going to be dangerous. And she talked about all the ways she thought the trial had been unfair.
1: We noted at the beginning of the show that at the very first stop on this tour, a reporter asked about Parson's background and that she refused to answer. But news coverage of her speaking tour didn't drop this issue. There was a lot of focus on her appearance and a lot of speculation that she had some combination of African, indigenous, and Mexican ancestry. And a lot of reporters just described her appearance as they would describe the appearance of a Black person, focusing on the color of her skin and the color and texture of her hair and the structure of her facial bones.
0: A lot of reporters seemed to assume that she was black, and they wrote about her in a way that drew from stereotypes of black people. But at the same time, Lucy Parsons was defying stereotypes of anarchists who were usually imagined as white and male with unkempt beards and kind of an unhinged rhetoric. Parsons was always very neatly dressed in dark-colored dresses and elegant but usually simple accessories. It all together just projected this sense of respectability. But she combined that with radical rhetoric. She often
1: started speeches by declaring, quote, I am an anarchist. On December 20th, 1886, she gave a speech at Kansas City's Clump Hall in which she said, quote, I suppose some of you expected to see me with a bomb in one hand and a flaming torch in the other, but are disappointed in seeing neither. If such has been your ideas regarding an anarchist, you deserve to be disappointed. Anarchists are peaceable, law-abiding people. What do anarchists mean when they speak of Anarchy. Webster gives the term two definitions, chaos and the state of being without political rule. We cling to the latter definition. Our enemies hold that we believe only in the former.
0: Lucy Parsons faced arrest at various points on this tour, and in Columbus, Ohio, she was jailed and told she would have to return to stand trial for what was deemed obscene language. Uh, She did not go back for that court date, but the arrests continued after she got back home. Two of Albert's
1: co-defendants asked for mercy, and their sentences were reduced to life in prison. But Parsons and the rest refused to do the same, and by the fall of 1887, it was clear that they were going to be hanged. The days leading up to his execution seemed to have been really tumultuous for Lucy. First, she released a statement that she would never enter the jail again until she could do so without being humiliated and degraded. But a few days later, she went to see her husband, and she fainted while she was there. A final visit was arranged for the men's wives, but Lucy was not there. Instead, she arrived at the jail with their children the morning of the execution, insisting that they be allowed to see their father one last time. Instead of that, Lucy was arrested, and according to a statement by Lizzie Swank, she was strip-searched, and all of them were detained until the execution was over.
0: Aside from this period just before the execution, Lucy Parsons had been described as just relentlessly defiant through all of this. But afterward, at least at first, she was described as distraught. She and her children were living mostly on assistance from the Pioneer Aid and Support Association, which had been set up to support the surviving families of the Haymarket Eight. But soon she was back at work. And about six months after Albert's execution, she also became romantically involved with a married man. This was the first of a series of relationships for her that played out over the rest of her life.
1: In October of 1888, less than a year after Albert's execution, their daughter Lula died at the age of eight. She had contracted scarlet fever during Lucy's speaking tour, and the cause of her death was listed as lymphedema, possibly connected to that earlier illness. Shortly after that, her son, Albert Jr., vanished. It turned out that he was with friends, but this was not the only time that he disappeared. In April of 1891, he disappeared for about six weeks. This seems to have been the start of a growing estrangement between Albert Jr. and his mother, brought on by the deaths of his father and sister, Lucy moving on with other men, and her pressing her son to be a part of her activism work.
0: Yeah, he he does not seem to have wanted to hand out pamphlets and go to rallies with her. Lucy Parsons became increasingly radical after her husband's death. During the Homestead Steel Strike, she wrote that she admired anarchist Alexander Berkman, who had tried to assassinate the factory's manager, Henry Clay Frick. Her increasing calls for violence led some of the organizations that she had been involved in to stop asking her to speak, She was frequently arrested or police would try to stop her from entering the places where she was supposed to speak. All of this just made her more and more defiant.
1: In June of 1893, Albert Jr. unveiled a Haymarket memorial statue at Chicago's Waldheim Cemetery. And the next day, the three convicted men who were still living were all pardoned. All three of those men cut ties with Lucy Parsons.
0: Other rifts emerged in the 1890s as well. As one example, Parsons butted heads with anarchist Emma Goldman, largely over the idea of free love. A lot of anarchists in the late 19th century criticized the institution of marriage since it was essentially managed by the state. That wasn't the only reason, but that was a big part of it. People who advocated free love argued that existing social conventions around love and marriage and sex were violating people's autonomy, especially women's autonomy. So Emma Goldman argued for freedom in all things, including love and sex, but Lucy Parsons argued that the power imbalances that came from patriarchy extended to women's sexuality as well and that if women practiced free love, it would reinforce the idea that women owed men sex. She also just generally advocated kind of a Victorian-esque idea of respectability, even though in her own life, she pursued relationships with men under her own terms, outside of the framework of marriage, which was what a lot of the free love (laughs) advocates were advocating (laughs) in the first place.
1: Parsons continued to speak at Chicago's annual Haymarket commemorations in the 1890s, and she established a journal called Freedom, a Revolutionary Anarchist-Communist Monthly with Lizzie Swank. But later, Lizzie married a man named William Holmes, and they moved away. Lizzie had been one of Lucy's longest and most steadfast friends and colleagues.
0: Lucy Parsons was somewhat less active as an activist and a radical in the 1890s, and she started supporting herself as a peddler. In February of 1895, she was injured in a fall, and then she had an altercation with the husband of the woman who she hired to help her while she was injured. This man said that Parsons was filling his wife's head with, quote, "...socialistic teachings." In the summer of 1896, her home was badly damaged in a fire that destroyed a lot of her mementos of her late husband. In
1: 1889, Albert Parsons Jr. tried to join the Army, something that Lucy vehemently objected to. And in response, she had him involuntarily committed. He was held in the Illinois Northern Hospital for the Insane until his death from tuberculosis in 1919. He was reportedly bullied and harassed by the other patients because of his mother's reputation and her activities as an anarchist. We have absolutely nothing to document how Lucy felt about this or justified it to herself, or whether she felt like it was something that needed justification
0: at all. Yeah, uh, Jacqueline Jones in her biography just describes this as cruel, like and and kind of unimaginably and inexplicably cruel. Mainstream U.S. culture had always viewed anarchists as deeply suspicious at best, and that became even more the case in the early 20th century. In 1900, anarchist Gaetano Bresci assassinated King Umberto I of Italy, and in 1901, anarchist Leon Cholgos shot President William McKinley, who then died as a result of his injuries eight days later. These and other events sparked a backlash against anarchists that would eventually grow into the first Red Scare toward the end of World War I. There were other factors involved in that, too. We've covered this on the show before. But the United States also saw a new wave of anarchism during these years. But this time, it was largely focused on Italian immigrants to the eastern U.S., Parsons wasn't as directly
1: connected to this evolution in the anarchist movement, but she was one of the founders of the Industrial Workers of the World, a.k.a. the Wobblies, in 1905. This was envisioned as a general union that could bring together workers across industries, and it became known for its radical and sometimes violent tactics.
0: Yeah, it was the probably most reviled and distrusted union of this era, And Parsons attended its founding convention. She was an unaffiliated delegate there. She was the only woman to speak at the convention. She advocated for women and racial and ethnic minorities and migrant workers from Central America and unemployed people to be accepted as full members of the IWW. While she wasn't heavily involved in many of the IWW's activities after this, she did edit its publication, The Liberator, in 1905 and 1906. This publication was named after William Lloyd Garrison's abolitionist newspaper that ran from the 1830s to the 1860s.
1: In the 19-teens, Parsons focused on trying to organize and advocate for people who were hungry, unemployed, and homeless. She again faced arrests repeatedly, including in Los Angeles in 1913, for selling literature without a license. In 1914, she was charged with inciting a riot when she was arrested while speaking and the crowd followed her to the jail, although those charges
0: were dropped. Parsons' demonstrations during these years included one that started at Jane Addams Hull House involved hundreds of people marching against hunger and unemployment and hundreds of people were arrested. Jane Addams paid Parsons bail and criticized these arrests, noting that the only thing anybody was guilty of doing was parading without a permit. Uh, She also praised Parsons' advocacy for the unemployed. And this is such an interesting moment to me because these two women were opposite in a (laughs) lot of ways.
1: (laughs) By this point, Chicago's Black population was significantly larger than it had been when Parsons first arrived, up from less than 1% of the population to about 4%. And that community had also become more visible in terms of the struggle for equal rights. For example, Pullman Porters had been trying to unionize since 1909. That's something we covered on the show back in 2014. But Parsons' activism still did not really involve or address the Black community. During those years, she was more focused on immigrants from Mexico who had fled the Mexican Revolution between 1910 and 1920, and on raising money for Americans and Mexican immigrants who tried to cross the border to fight in the revolution. That violated neutrality laws.
0: By the 1920s, Parsons had become involved with the Communist Party, although she didn't formally join the party until 1939. She also started working with the party's International Labor Defense, which was formed in response to the trials of anarchists Nicolas Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti. In 1927, Parsons was elected to serve on the International Defense Fund's National Committee. Later on, this defense fund helped defend nine Black teenagers who were falsely accused of raping two white women in 1931, Uh, They had become known as the Scottsboro Boys, and they were convicted. This is a much bigger story. It's been on my list for an episode of the podcast for a long time, but it's a lot, which is uh, why we haven't done it yet.
1: In the last few years of Lucy Parsons' life, she supported herself by running a boarding house, and she continued to speak at Haymarket commemorations and labor rights events. She lived with her long term companion, George Markstall. Some sources actually say they were married. She eventually lost most
0: of her sight and was granted a pension from a fund to support blind people. On March 7th, 1942, a fire started in her home. She was killed in this fire, and George Markstall died of injuries that he incurred while he was trying to save her. About 300 people attended a joint memorial that was held for the two of them. As we mentioned at the top of the show,
1: authorities raided what was left of her home afterwards, seizing any papers, writing, books, and other materials that survived. Although Parsons had not received a lot of formal education, she had been a voracious reader and autodidact, and her personal library had contained about 3,000 volumes before the fire.
0: Although Lucy Parsons had been just notorious during her lifetime. After her death, that notoriety faded. But interest in her life increased in the middle of the 20th century in tandem with the Civil Rights Movement, the Chicana Movement, and just a growing interest in Black, Hispanic, and Latino, and Indigenous history. And people, historians and otherwise, have really been all over the place in terms of how they have characterized Lucy Parsons' identity and her ancestry based on her own contradictory descriptions of herself. Uh, what's really undeniable, though, is that she was a woman of color who carved a place for herself in a movement that was just overwhelmingly white and male. Do you have a listener mail? Uh, I have listener mail that comes from Dylan, who wrote after our recent Saturday classic On the right of Spring Riots, and Dylan says, Hello, Holly and Tracy, This is Dylan, and I've been a fan of the pod for a few years. I had never listened to the episode about the Rite of Spring until you reposted it as a Saturday classic. I found it very interesting. I thought you might find it interesting to hear about the piece from a professional bassoonist's perspective." The opening solo of the right has become so standard that I have never seen a principal bassoon audition list of excerpts that didn't include it. I can't imagine what I would have thought if I was the bassoonist playing the premiere and walked into the first rehearsal and saw that. He's rumored to have called it impossible to play, and at the time, it probably was nearly impossible There have been significant improvements to the high range of the bassoon since then, so that our standard orchestral range actually goes even higher now. It is still terribly difficult to play, requiring special reeds and vocals, the part that you blow into, to make them possible to play consistently. Some bassoonists even wean themselves off of caffeine in the weeks leading up to a performance because caffeine is a diuretic and makes it slightly more difficult to breathe. Most people don't even notice this effect, but when you're playing something that challenging in such a high-pressure situation, every little bit makes a difference. Thank you for a such a wonderful podcast. Stay well. Regards, Dylan. Thank you so much, Dylan, for this. Since I am of the generation who has been listening to the Rite of Spring since watching Disney's Fantasia as a child, <laughs> uh, that bassoon solo doesn't sound weird to me like it has just been a part of my existence since childhood so uh, I did not really realize how difficult it is to play as a bassoonist so thank you so much for uh, giving us some insight into that if you would like to uh, send us a note about this or any other podcast we're at history podcast at iheartradio.com we're all over social media at mist and history that's where you'll find our facebook twitter pinterest and instagram and you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app, and Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Zumo Play.